morning. Um, if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21, uh, that's where we're going to be here in the Word today um, with our fourth I Am statement that Jesus has made. Um, and I'm going to grab my water while I talk. Verses on the screen, and uh, feel free to follow along uh, there in your Bible. And uh, we'll do, d- jump into this this morning. So beginning in John chapter 10, um, beginning in verse 10, um, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. <coughs> He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you just for this day and for um, this opportunity to study your word. Pray that you'll give us understanding and ultimately, Lord, um, help us to live for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So we've been doing this I Am series, and we're uh, looking at the I Am statements of Jesus, looking at who he said that he was. Um, who he declared himself to be. Um, And ultimately, we are challenged, just like the people in the first century, at taking Jesus for who he said he was or rejecting that and giving him our own definition. And so we've looked at these I am statements and we're looking at how Jesus described himself. You know, we talked early on about these competing views of who Jesus is. Is he a good man? Was he a good teacher? Was he a prophet? Or was he actually the son of God? And he describes himself as uh, the son of God and God in the flesh. And so we have to, when we're understanding who Jesus is, look at it through that lens. Now, last week we were talking about Jesus when he says, I am the door. Um, And uh, we talked about the fact that Jesus... Uh, when he's talking about I am the door, most of us aren't uh, uh, shepherds or deal with sheep on a regular uh, basis. You might eat them from time to time, but uh, if you aren't raised on a farm or raised in first century uh, Jewish culture, then maybe some of these analogies are lost on you just a little bit. And so uh, we showed you, and I have a picture of it again, a picture of a sheep pen. And uh, uh, it's a modern sheep pen next to a uh, old school sheep pen, but there's an opening and these wood or stones kind of broken around it. Uh, and the sheep obviously go in. 
Now, when we're not really uh, uh, understanding this, then when we hear Jesus say, I am the door, and then subsequently, I am the good shepherd, we feel as though his analogy is confused, like he can't make up his mind. But we understand when we look at the sheep pen that, uh, that there's the pen itself, and, the, and so Jesus is the door, the gateway, but what would happen at night was that they would put the sheep in the pen, and then the shepherd would stand in the doorway. So Jesus, as we're walking into things today, says, I am the good shepherd, and I, I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. I am the way, and I am the one that stands guard at the door. And because Jesus is a good, the good shepherd, then there are some implications for our lives. So our main idea here this morning is this. A good shepherd cares for you sacrificially and individually. The good shepherd cares for you sacrificially and individually. And as we look at what it means to be the good shepherd and what Jesus is implying, it's important for us to see that here today. And so let's just walk through this, just a couple points about a good shepherd, the good shepherd. First of all, a good shepherd lives life sacrificially. A good shepherd lives life sacrificially. What do we mean when we say that? It might seem intuitive, but we're going to walk through this. Um, So let's go back to verse 10, which is where we left off where we ended last week. Uh, But let's look at verse 10. It says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So we see this, that the good shepherd actually lives sacrificially. And ultimately, life comes with sacrifice. Life comes with sacrifice. And and he gives us life through sacrifice. That might be difficult at times for us to always wrap our heads around, but uh, to really give life, it really requires you to sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when uh, Jesus is talking here, he's conjuring up the idea, or not conjuring, but uh, alluding to the Old Testament understanding of a shepherd. There are two examples in the Old Testament that are given of what a good shepherd is. The first of which is Moses, and the second of which in the Messianic Psalms is David. Two people who are described as being a good shepherd. Moses able to lead people through the desert. And ultimately, um, uh, uh, David, uh, who does it uh, as in those Messianic Psalms, but, uh, and he literally uh, embodies it in 1 Samuel 17, 34-37, where he's literally going, real, willing to go out against bears, lions, whatever, and protect the sheep, as a good shepherd actually does. But what Jesus ultimately points to is that he is the greater shepherd. He is the greatest shepherd. That whatever Moses and David did was a foreshadowing of who he was and that he actually is the good shepherd that was foretold in the Old Testament. So Jesus comes to give us life, but it can only happen through sacrifice. And as we said, few things in life come, few great things in life come without sacrifice. 
few great things in life come without sacrifice. And ultimately, what tends to be true is that the amount that you're willing to sacrifice is representative of how far you can actually get. That if you, you know, like, are you willing to sacrifice blank in order to receive blank? Truly important things require sacrifice. Sit there and I went to college like many of us did in this room. And at a certain point, if you want to graduate from college, then you're going to have to sacrifice time, energy, resources in order to make it happen. And now, um, for me, when I was an undergrad in college, I didn't necessarily uh, work the hardest, but I did work hard enough to get a degree. But as it stands, when I decided to go get my master's, it was considerably harder to do that than it was to do my undergrad. And at the point that I finally went to seminary uh, and started doing grad school and all that kind of stuff, uh, I was married and pregnant. I say I wasn't pregnant. Grace was pregnant uh, with our first kid, Jaden. And, uh, and then I, I, I was doing things. And then when Jaden was born, I took some time off. Then I went back to school and I had Jaden and Aria and I'm writing papers with my kids crawling on top of me. That's a real thing. I'm reading uh, philosophy books because uh, I had a philosophy concentration in my master's, and I'm trying to read Aristotle, Cicero, um, you know, Richard Dawkins, and everything in between, and like Aria's in my face, da, da, and Jaden's like, ah, and I'm like, this is crazy, uh, and it was just insane. But ultimately, I graduated with honors at that. Uh, um, you know, uh, kudos to me and the hard work. But uh, um, I graduated, uh, and it required sacrifice. Like, it, it did. It required me to sacrifice. And in many ways, same thing, is that everything good in life typically requires sacrifice, and how much you're willing to sacrifice is what ultimately you will get out of it. And so Jesus gives us life through sacrifice, which is what makes him the good shepherd. Whereas David was willing to die for the sheep, Jesus actually died for the sheep. And we see within this that Jesus isn't indifferent. He sacrifices because he loves the sheep. And we don't typically sacrifice for people or things that we are indifferent towards. Like, like why would you sacrifice for something or someone that you don't really care about? I sit there and I think I, I have these uh, workout videos. Um with an app that all of a sudden has lost my, uh, has lost me. But anyway, on the workout videos in this particular app, uh, you're doing your little workout thing and there's this guy and girl who are telling you all this kind of stuff. And consistently throughout the whole thing, they're like, this is where it burns. And you're like, okay, yeah, this is where it burns. But they always say this phrase throughout the workout, especially when they get to the part where it burns. They're like, remember who you're doing this for. Like, remember who you're doing this for in the sense that, like, you are working out because you're trying to get your life together. And oftentimes when people work out, they uh, or get, go to the doctor and they realize that their health isn't where it should be. You start thinking about your wife, your kids, and all the people that you want to live longer for. And so they begin to say, remember who you're doing this for. Remember why you're doing this. Remember the loved ones that, you know, you don't want to have a heart attack when you're 38. And so you're like, why am I doing this? 
And it's interesting insofar as uh, we are in the business of sacrificing for people that we love. And we see here in this passage of Scripture that it's not just that Jesus sacrificed. He sacrifices because he loves the sheep. He's willing to lay down his life. He's willing to sacrifice and live sacrificially because he cares for the sheep. Which leads us to our second thing. A good shepherd doesn't just live sacrificially. A good shepherd cares for sheep individually. He cares for the sheep individually. We see this as he builds on this in verses 14 through 16. In verse 14 it says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have the other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus knows his sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Jesus isn't just broadly talking about the sheep. He's talking the, the flock of sheep is made up of individual sheep. And Jesus is saying, I know every last one of the sheep that are in my flock. In order to know your flock, you actually have to know the sheep that are in the flock. And so Jesus says, I don't just love generally, I love specifically. If I sit there and say that I love my family... We'll talk about my immediate family. You assume that when I say I love my family, that that means that I love specifically my wife and my three and soon to be four kids. I love them generally, but that generally uh, is exists because I love them specifically and individually. They're not the same. Jaden isn't the same as Judah. Who isn't the same as Aria? Who isn't the same as Grace? And the child that's to come will have their own unique personality, loves, passions, and I will love them specifically. The flock is made up of individuals, but what becomes important is that the love that the shepherd has for the sheep is reciprocated from the sheep towards the shepherd. He says, I know my sheep and they know me. And Jesus ultimately is saying that I love you uniquely. I love my sheep uniquely and individually for who they are. Without condition, better yet is what I mean to say. He loves us unconditionally and specifically. There's literally nothing that you can do or that I could do that would somehow stop Jesus from loving us. And that is an encouraging thing for us. But it just doesn't end there. Jesus doesn't just care for uh, the flock. He cares for us individually. And the makeup of that flock is a multi-ethnic flock. Jesus cares for all nations. You see that in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold i must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock one shepherd one flock one shepherd the sheep of another flock are ultimately the gentiles which means the other nations he's talking to a jewish audience and saying by the way i came for you and you are my sheep but also i have sheep other sheep and they've got to come into this flock 
it's echoed in one of our foundational verses here in Isaiah 49, 6, uh, which talks about it being too light of a thing for Jesus to be about the, the, um, the, the preservation of one tribe, but he's going to make uh, uh, the Messiah as a light to the nations so that salvation may go to the ends of the earth. And so, uh, like, what God is doing isn't about just one people. It's about all nations, one flock, one church. In the movie Drumline, uh, which I, I remember watching back in high school, uh, they're continuously, you know, Nick Cannon is that, that drummer doing his little thing. And, you know, it wasn't the first, but it was one of many of, uh, I'm not going to lie, I get so frustrated with movies like this, not because, I mean, they're not great movies, but I get frustrated with them because always in those movies, there's like some uber talented person that, uh, you know, you know, uh, does what they have to do. They've got to go through their hero's journey. Uh, and then there's like a bad uh, drum line or a ba- bad band or a bad dance troupe. You know, they're all essentially the same thing. The dance slash drum line slash uh, stomp the yard, which is the stepping version of, of all the same movie. It's all the same movie, same plot. But always when you get to the end of the movies, when they have the big showdown, the team that we're supposed to be rooting for always ends up souping up their side with all these extra people that technically shouldn't go. And I'm like, well, if you have to soup up with all these people in order to win, then what does that really say? But anyway, I digress. In the movie Drumline, the, they, echo, they always say this thing, which is echoed in a lot of the arts. Uh, the band director is looking at his marching band, and he's saying, one band, one sound. One band, one sound. The band is obviously made up of multiple instruments, just like any ensemble, uh, whether it's a band or a choir or whatever it is, it's made up of multiple people, multiple sounds, but the goal of a band is not for you to hear any one individual person sticking out, but it's for them to work together as a cohesive unit. The goal of a good ensemble or the tell, test of a good ensemble is whether or not individual voices or instruments stick out or do they blend together seamlessly. And the part that's crazy is that they're going to blend together, but they do it through expressing their unique voices, sounds that the instruments or vocals make. So what we're not talking about and what Jesus isn't talking about isn't, isn't that like in this one flock that there aren't unique features to every single sheep that's in the flock. But the flock is one flock, one shepherd, one flock. And so Jesus loves all the people that he draws to himself from every nation individually, specifically, and yet it all comes together to make one flock. And he's the shepherd. He's the one that's leading. He's the one that's guiding. He's the one that's protecting. He's the one that is guiding the sheep to where they need to go. He's the one that gives them access to the Father. And he's the one that stands at the door and gives guard to the sheep. Jesus is creating a flock of every nation. And in this day and age where we are ripping each other at the seams culturally over race, We miss the point. It's not about white, black, Hispanic, Asian, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, progressive, conservative. The flock of God will represent, will have people represented on all of those fronts in the spectrum. And what defines us as his sheep is that we know his voice. So, 
Jesus lives, uh, a good shepherd lives life sacrificially, cares for sheep individually, and lastly, uh, chooses hardship over comfort. A good shepherd uh, chooses hardship over comfort. Let's look at verses 17 and 18 and, and, uh, um, and, and look at this last part. In verse 17, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. The sacrifice that Jesus makes is a choice. I lay down my life. I choose to lay down my life. And it's always more impactful when somebody makes the choice, right? When somebody chooses to sacrifice, when somebody chooses hardship over discomfort on your behalf, rather than being forced to do it, it's far more impactful. And ultimately, if it was forced, then it wouldn't be true sacrifice. Jesus makes the choice to sacrifice for his people. Jesus makes the sacrifice, makes the choice to lay down his life and endure suffering on our behalf. It's a choice. He doesn't have to do it, but he chooses to do it. And that leads us to great comfort and joy and gratefulness because Jesus ultimately demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he dies for us. So he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life, but he lays it down so that he can take it up again. Jesus has authority over taking his life back up again. It was mine to give and mine to to raise and come back up. Jesus ultimately gave up his life when his suffering was complete. That's what this is alluding to, that Jesus is saying that I'm going to suffer, and when my suffering is complete, when the work is done, then I will say the words, it is finished, and I will die. But three days later, that temple that was destroyed will be raised back up again, and it is my choice to come back and give resurrection power and life to all who are in my flock. Ultimately, when Jesus says this, he's pointing to his divine nature. If he has the power to lay down his life and the power to raise it back up, then clearly he is in control. It's a movie that I watched in college that I kind of hated, but a lot of people loved. Uh, it was a chick flick, a little romantic chick flick named The Notebook. Um, and I'm not going to lie, um, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I, I watched the movie and I was frustrated. I thought that Amy Adams' character was trifling uh, and frustrating. But the part that cracked me up at the end, and this is where I suspended my disbelief um, uh, for a romantic comedy is, and if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm about to ruin it for you. Um, but, uh, you know, you're telling, they're telling this, this, oh, this old man is in a nursing home telling this woman this love story. 
Um, and you get to the end of the movie, and it turns out that Ryan Gosling is now this old man, and Amy Adams is this old woman, and, and she's got dementia or whatever, and she forgets. So every day he comes in and tells her the story of how they came back together. And so you're watching this, and then at the end of the movie, like she's you know like sick, and towards the end of life, and she get he gets to the end of the story, and she finally remembers, and then like again and cries, just like they go through this routine every single day. Um, and uh, then she, you know, like one last time as he's holding her, like this old lady just dies. And then he decides that he's going to give up his ghost and he just dies. And I was like, what? <laughs> what is going on? And like nurses walk in the room and it's like, oh, and like the sad music's playing and everybody's like crying. It's beautiful. I was like, that dude can't just give up his ghost. What you talking about? That's not the way this thing works. I, I remember watching it with my roommates, which is already funny that there are a bunch of dudes uh, watching The Notebook together. But all these girls told us that we should watch it, and, you know, we, we liked girls. So uh, we watched this movie, and I just remember getting to the end. I looked at my roommate, and I, uh, and I was like, man, that's trash. Uh, forget this. But uh, unlike uh, Jesus, unlike uh, these, the, the person in the movie, Jesus actually has the authority to lay down his life and to take it back up again. Now, what would have been really crazy is if at the end of the notebook, old boy would have died and then come back. Uh, but he is like, I wanted to come back. But he can't do that. And ultimately, none of us can. When we die, we are dead. But Jesus demonstrates his authority over life and death, that he makes the willful decision to lay down his life, and he makes the willful decision to come back up again. And he's ultimately saying, I've got this. I'm choosing hardship over comfort and because I can, because I've got this, because all power is in my hand, I will make this choice. Jesus ultimately says, I've got this. I've got this. I remember... Goodness gracious, some 16 years ago, if you know me, I'm a big college basketball fanatic, and I was watching in preparation for March Madness the Conference USA uh, 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 Tournament uh, Championship, and in that year, Louisville uh, was playing Memphis, and uh, it was interesting. This game goes down to the wire. Uh, Louisville is like ranked top 10, and so they're going to make the, the NCAA tournament no matter what. But Memphis actually needed to win this conference championship game in order to make it to the tournament. And the game goes back and forth and back and forth. And in the final uh, minute, uh, the uh, final seconds of the game, Louisville is down or is up by two points, 73 or 75 to 73. Memphis gets the ball. A guy by the name of Darius Washington drives up the court and jumps from behind the three-point line to shoot this running shot as time was expiring. But as he gets airborne, one of the Louisville players accidentally fouls him in the air. The refs go back to look at replay. Was his foot behind the three-point line or not? It was. With no time on the clock, Darius Washington walks to the free throw line by himself with his team down two to shoot three free throws. With two free throws made, he can tie the game and send it to overtime. And with three free throws made, he'll win the game because time is expired. Darius walks up to the free throw line. And he's a 72% free throw shooter, which basically means... This is pretty hopeful. He nothing but net swishes the first free throw. 
the crowd begins to go wild. He looks back at his teammates. There's nobody's around the free throw line. And he's like, I got this. He takes the second free throw and it just bounces around and kind of rolls around the rim and then falls out. But it's okay. He's got one more free throw and he's 72% free throw shooter, which basically means two out of three should be easy for him. Crowd goes wild. Takes the last free throw, pulls up, shoots. This one wasn't even close. It clangs against the front of the rim, barely getting over and off to the side. His team's season is over. He immediately drops to the ground and begins to weep. The Louisville players are celebrating. Coach Jim Calipari, who was coaching Memphis at the time, runs over and begins to try to pick Darius Washington up to try to encourage him. His teammates trying to hug him, trying to give him some kind of comfort. And the confidence of having a 72% free throw shooter walking to the line, I got this, was all of a sudden dashed because he didn't actually got this. And in many ways, we find ourselves in a similar place. Many of us would try to say, I've got this. I can do this. I can make this thing happen on my own. But ultimately, what we don't need is our own work. But what we need is a good shepherd in Jesus who actually has this, who lays down his life for his sheep and takes his life back up again in the resurrection and gives all of his sheep eternal life. Much like, though, the people listening, we have a response to this. The disciples obviously believed, but the religious leaders listening began to bicker and argue, as we read at the very beginning. We read the whole passage. Some begin to say that this man is insane. It's clearly a demon that has twisted his mind. But others begin to make a point. Uh, demons aren't making the blind see. These aren't the kind of words that somebody who's demon-possessed actually say. These are the things that a prophet or somebody incredible actually says. And so we have to begin to wrestle with the truth of who Jesus says he is. I believe that Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for you who, lay, live, who lived sacrificially for you, who cares for you individually, and in that chose hardship over comfort. And because Jesus is the good shepherd, then we ought to put our faith and trust in him and trust him that as we come and go, he will provide, protect, and guide us. I'll close with this. One of the first passages of scriptures that I ever learned was the 23rd Psalm. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me through the paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Truly goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is what a good shepherd does. He cares for his flock individually. He cares for his flock sacrificially. And he chooses the hardship over comfort because he loves his sheep. And what David understood to be true, Jesus fulfills, and we have the opportunity to walk in that today. Let's pray.